0: Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. The structure of the economy doesn't support this continued
1: growth. These secondary markets make this private market liquid. It's
0: telling us that there's going to be a financial accident
1: or recession. When you get in, you can't get out. The biggest problems that we're facing today is the problem of inflation. It's too big to ignore. In emerging market investing, what's comfortable is rarely profitable.
0: I'm Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Today's topic... Is Real Asset Private Debt. And we're joined today by Matt Odessa, Private Market Specialist at DWS. Matt, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for being on.
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me, Stu. Uh, excited to uh, do my first podcast ever. This is a great honor. Appreciate the invite.
0: We're happy to have you. And you're among friends here, obviously. We've been the first podcast for a lot of folks in the business. And so, you know, we've had, we're 100% success rate, so this will be no different. So we'll start this one off the way we start them all. What's your hometown, your first job of any kind, not the fancy one, and what makes insurance asset management so cool?
1: So I'm from Andover, Massachusetts. You know, I've been here for many years since I was a freshman in high school is when we moved here back in the early 90s and aged myself a little bit. And that's when I also had my first job where I became a, um, what I like to call a pizza delivery technician. So Domino's pizza. I love that. A couple of years, you know, in between uh, prep school and college, you know, summers was uh, was slinging pizzas, both making and delivering. So that's uh, how I started my my, uh, illustrious career here. (laughs) Um, I like it. uh, Yeah. What what makes insurance asset management so cool? I, I actually think you know, maybe you you asked that a little bit tongue in cheek, but I've spent my career more on sort of the relationship management distribution side of things. And I, I just find that, that the problems that are being solved, the questions that are being asked, there's a real richness in, in the discussion and the dialogue. And most of the people that I find in this space are just very thoughtful. It's all different types of people, but most people that are not just looking for the quick answer, that are really looking for sort of, you know, layered, thoughtful, durable investment ideas and approaches to solve the problems that they're looking to solve. So I you know I've really sort of found, you know, the people probably the coolest part.
0: Yeah, I agree. I do really believe that insurance asset management is by far the most sophisticated institutional asset management sleeve. It's, there's not a close second. And someone summed it up for me the other day about a friend named Jonathan who who said it's the externalities. Right? And that's what it is. In one word, it's externalities. It's the ratings, the regulation, the loss experience, the capital position, all of that. Tax position and the risk posture. Each one of these firms has their own unique appetite for risk. Right. And it's really about having those conversations to really get to know the client and and know how you can help them out. And so with DWS, I mean, where it takes this conversation is. Where in your mind does real asset private debt fit into the larger private debt slash credit space?
1: Yeah, it's a, that's great. I think I'm going to, uh, you know, lift your friend's term there. I mean, externalities does really sort of sum it up perfectly. And then I think it, you know, maybe a little bit goes to the question you asked here. But it, you know, People say the word private credit a lot these are the term private credit a lot these days. And it's not, you know, sort of unique in terms of the growing interest in private credit to the insurance space. So, you know, obviously credit generally is, you know, has a, plays a very large role in most balance sheets. Lots of folks that have been thinking about insurance company balance sheets for many years are very smart, sophisticated credit investors, as you mentioned. But I think when you sort of Expand on that concept of private credit. I think there's a lot of different ways. You know, you, you and I were speaking, you mentioned all the asset classes that you guys cover and think about on a regular basis. And I think private credit is one of those where, depending on who you talk to, it can mean a, you know, a lot of things to a lot of different people. You know, we come at and have sort of come at our sort of approach to the private debt space more from the standpoint of, of investors in both the real estate and infrastructure equity markets. We have been at DWS for a long time you know, investors in in those spaces, more predominantly in the US is our real estate business, and more predominantly in Europe is our infrastructure business, as one might expect given, you know, sort of the way that private investment in infrastructure is developed. And so our debt capabilities have really become an extension of that. So we, you know, we've been for a long time trying to figure out how do we get these opportunities in the hands of the right people who are thinking about the up in the capital stack opportunities that exist. And are they the people that are thinking about if we're thinking about real estate debt, for example, are the people that are thinking about real estate at XYZ allocation division, you know, whether it be the investment division insurance company or more broadly, or is it somebody that's thinking about exposure to real estate through structured securities, which you know obviously played a huge role pre-GFC and then saw some changes post-GFC? And so what we're finding is some of that is evolving, right? You have the people that very clearly sort of think about anything in the credit side of the, the equation from a real asset perspective as an extension of the work they do, they're still thinking about the same fundamentals on an ongoing basis, an asset that I plan to own. I still want to understand how high quality of an asset that is, even if I'm going to lend against it, right? Maybe that little wrinkle becomes, you know, doing the work on the sponsors and who's actually doing the borrowing. If you're not owning it, obviously, that adds a little bit of a, a wrinkle. But but what I, what I think I, we're finding is they're used to credit, real estate debt, infrastructure debt. It used to be this sort of tweener asset class. And depending on who you spoke to, it was, you know, maybe fixed income, maybe sat with the investment teams that were focused on the, the actual equity asset opportunities as well. I think increasingly we're seeing that there's a lot more focus given what we're seeing in the markets right now. I know we're gonna probably touch on that a little bit, but that the folks that actually understand the assets themselves are where we're having the preponderance of our conversations about where the opportunities exist. And it really is because some of these opportunities are getting flipped on their heads. You think about, you know, investing in an industrial building, those cap rates were so tight for so long, they've widened out a little bit, but you're still in a spot where if you're going to go buy a new or build a new industrial building, you're still probably targeting sort of mid to high single digits from a return perspective to be the equity owner where you might be able to invest up the stack in some mezzanine debt or you know some pref equity on some of those deals where you're going to make a significant amount more. And that dynamic is new to the marketplace. Right. And so we're, we are starting to see a little bit more of that, you know, real asset focus and real asset experience be sort of shifted to think about the relative value opportunities up and down the capital stack.
0: That's really helpful. Thank you. And so when we think about historical performance of real asset debt, right, both, real estate and infrastructure and the fundamentals of those markets. What can you tell us about that?
1: I think that probably dovetails a little bit onto what we were just talking about before, right? The the ways that you could access some of these real asset opportunities were either through securitizations, you know, specifically with real estate pre-GFC, and it sort of just became part of The ag index in a lot of ways, you got your exposure to the commercial mortgage market through some exposures sort of up in quality there. But if you really started to take real estate as an example, really started to pull out historical return performance information. We did a study very recently where we just looked at the last 13 years, sort of 2010 and beyond, which gives you the sense for post-GFC normalization, obviously some dips through that time period. But real estate debt, both sort of core and high yield, Have a meaningful impact on portfolios from either you're going to get sort of comparable returns to, uh, or you know, pick up from investment grade corporate bonds with less volatility, or comparable returns with significantly less volatility. And as you move up into the high yield space, it's been even more pronounced, to a a couple under basis points from a you know standard deviation perspective and, and volatility and return enhancement. And you're doing it in a way that is also, in most instances. Additive from a diversification perspective, because correlations with real estate debt or real asset credit have been pretty substantial in terms of their ability to sort of um, enhance efficiency in, in like an MPT sense. So, and I think infrastructure debt is, you know, sort of follows the same thesis there, where you're, you're effectively saying, hey, we have these credit instruments look largely like other credit instruments, but the financing is on an asset that is critically important to the operation of the economy. You know, if you look historically at default recovery rates, if you can get paid the same on an infrastructure asset or paid a little bit more because there's a liquidity give up and, you know, the default recovery experience is significantly better, which typically it is. And as you would expect from an allocation to an infrastructure uh, asset, just again, given the importance to the economy, you know, there's there's really an opportunity to deliver sort of outsized returns and, and really enhance the benefit in the overall sort of portfolio construction context.
0: That's really helpful. And, and I, I heard on a podcast that something on the order of 65% of CRE is financed in regional banks. And we know that there's stress there, right? So can you talk a little bit about trends in alternative real estate financing and that stress that I just discussed and the impact on the real estate debt market? I mean, I think that people want to hear kind of what are you seeing? Because it feels like there's a big shift here and uh, it seems like there's an opportunity.
1: Yeah, and 65 is, I assume, how you sort of slice the data is probably important when you think about the exact number. But whether it's 50, whether it's 65, whether it's slightly higher, whether it's some combination of, you know, depending on sort of the asset type that's being financed, whether it be construction or stabilized or, whatever the case may be definitely regional banks had been playing a, a very significant role in the financing of these assets and we're hearing all of this you know sort of scary talk about the doom loop we obviously there was some financial institutions that you know were fell victim to a little bit of um, asset liability mismatch there's lots of micro reasons that built themselves into the environment we have today but but definitely there has been a pullback Really, and, and what's interesting is sort of you look back in history, the regional banks stepped into a vacuum that was created by CMBS, the CMBS wheels kind of, you know, grinding to a halt post-GFC. So we've sort of seen this before where alternative lenders in the sense of, you know, you had your large banks that were doing the lending, and CMBS was a significant portion of sort of that new loan origination. GFC happens, you have this huge void, and, and the regionals did step into that in a, in, a, in a meaningful way. You also had some insurance companies, some real estate debt funds, some, you know, some other things that sort of picked up the slack. And what we expect to see happen is that those alternative investors, and like which is sort of what we talked about you know, in the first question you asked me, there is this growing real estate debt as an alternative asset class feel, and this is just gonna, I think, create more opportunities in that sense. I think one of the things to think about, which is interesting, and and again, we you hear you know the doom loop, and you know every loan, every office loan is a bad loan, and you know the bottom is nowhere near in sight for office in the U.S. And you know I don't know that we as a firm sort of fundamentally believe in the doom loop. I think we think that there's going to be some troubled assets, there's going to be some workout, there's going to need to be some creativity in the office space, almost like there was in the in the retail space when sort of the big box mall had all that stress, but what we really th- are finding interesting right now is you're still seeing opportunities to lend that aren't really on a like a like a spread basis. Aren't like if if it's a high quality asset that's owned by a high quality sponsor and the valuations are fair, you're still getting spreads that were sort of free hiking cycle <laughs> type. What you might just see is. Opportunities to lend against assets and investment types that didn't exist prior. Like we, we're seeing a little bit more activity where alternative lenders can step into the industrial space, for example, whereas that was almost a unicorn. Like people would say, Oh, hey, I love industrial and multifamily. I think that's been a, you know, it's our firm call. And I think it's been a pretty common, you know, real estate firm call for a while. Industrial has just been hard to lend against because there's been so much competition for the paper. Everybody had such confidence in, in the deals. you know a lot of assets sort of being invested with cash from you know some sort of larger obviously real estate funds. But now what's happening is this sort of step back from the banks, this little pause in, I think that's being created by the fear in office, but a little bit of contagion is creating opportunities for alternative lenders to step in, you know asset managers and the like insurance companies, and, and take advantage of opportunities in, in certain sectors that they hadn't really been able to participate in. Before.
0: Really helpful. And so when we think about your business, real asset, private debt, can you talk a little bit about the asset opportunity set, what your areas of focus are, and where you see relative value?
1: One of the things that I I think is remarkable that, you know, I'm not sure a lot of people fully understand. First of all, you know, you know, we talk about private credit kind of meaning a lot of different things to a lot of people. And infrastructure, I, th- I think, you know, means a lot of different things to a lot of people. I think some people hear the word infrastructure and they immediately think like, hey, it's, it means toll roads and airports or, you know, and there's other people that, you know, understand a little bit more of, you know, the nuance and the, and the drill down layers. When we think about infrastructure debt and the way our team approaches it, we talk about up to... And I think there's maybe new sectors that come on on a regular basis, but we're north of 60 plus subsectors that are all very sort of unique and different in the way that, that the underlying assets behave based on what the demand drivers of of the whatever's being, you know, sort of provided are. So infrastructure is an interesting one to look at because, you know, when you think about that investment opportunity... Europe was was ahead of us, you know, the data over there's a little bit richer because they've invested been investing longer. More opportunities as you, you know, I don't know if you've traveled internationally recently, but you you're usually flying from an airport that needs some love in the United States to an airport that looks, you know, brand new and sparkly public transport you know, overseas. So there is a huge need in the United States right now, so it's not only just that hey, if you can find the assets, they're, they're you know interesting to invest in, but there's a huge need in the United States for investment in infrastructure. So, the American Academy of Civil Engineers issued a paper, and they said, and I think this might even be a couple of years old, that there's a gap, a funding gap of what they think is necessary to improve or effectively right size five sectors within the infrastructure space that are important to U.S. citizens. So surface transportation, electricity, airports, water and wastewater infrastructure, and inland waterways and marine ports. A $6.1 trillion need over the course of the next 10 years with only visibility to $3.5 trillion in funding for those projects. So that's a $2.6 trillion funding gap. There's a huge need for capital in this space. And if you want say, all right, well, there's a huge need. Where's it going to come from? On the come, you know, to, to like back that point right up, we also have, you know, it, it's dipped a little bit, but at the end of the year last year, and this is because fundraising has, has slowed a little bit with uncertainty around rates and everybody's sort of waiting to see where the, you know, the macroeconomic backdrop settles. But at the end of last year, there was over $130 billion of dry powder and infrastructure-oriented private equity funds in the United States. So there's a ton of money there. If you think about the way that the capitalization of those projects would work, even if you assumed the conservative 50% LTV, you're, you're talking about $250 to $300 billion of capital that is kind of ready to go. And a significant portion of that is the debt capital stack. So you have, you know, for us, we we think there's a huge opportunity given that there is a need first and foremost it's it's not like we're you know we're going to be sort of shaking the trees trying to figure out who wants to <laughs> do infrastructure projects and there's a bunch of capital that's lined up and ready to go on the equity side so so we we continue to be pretty bullish on this opportunity for investors to deploy capital in the debt space and then i think you know at that point it's just a question of how do you think about you know infrastructure debt as a component of your overall asset allocation, where are you going to get those exposures? Are you going to get them in your liquid portfolio? Are you going to try to get them in your private portfolio, access, et cetera? But but at the end of the day, we think huge opportunity based on the need. The equity capital is already lined up. Yes, fundraising has slowed, but we expect it to pick back up once there's a little bit more certainty on what the future holds relative to rates, et cetera. So uh, we're pretty bullish on, on the infra opportunity. And then when you think about you know the real estate opportunity, <laughs> the question I think is less about will there be opportunities to invest and more about what are the right levels and 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 how do you think about the opportunity and and when do you, when do you enter another sort of pretty staggering number is nine hundred billion dollars of refinancings that are coming due there okay you know, maybe you've heard about this sort of refi wall that's you know it was two years out, maybe a couple months ago, <laughs> so you know it's it's coming closer and closer. A significant portion of you know that refi wall is it's opportunities to um uh, lenders that or borrowers that needed a refi in the middle of COVID. Maybe those things get kicked down the road, and you're getting to a situation where a lot of it is kind of stacked up, and there's going to need to be some people that will step in with capital and willing to support some of these projects. And, and so, you know, I guess on both sides of the equation, we don't feel like there's any shortage of opportunity, and it's really making sure that, you know, you had mentioned still at the top of the call, everybody's sort of risk appetites are different, and, you know, where do you want to play? How much capital do you have to deploy? How does it fit in with the rest of the portfolio? But, but definitely uh, ample opportunity to invest in, in both of these spaces and, you know, high-quality assets over the course of the next couple of years.
0: That's terrific. That's great insight. And so can you talk a little bit about your approaches to assessing the investment opportunities? I mean, I realize that some of your process is proprietary, but just to the extent that you can.
1: You know, we, we think, like I said, it's sort of in our DNA, right? That we, we're, Where does this land? Is, are they fixed income instruments? Are they real asset investments, just where you're talking about relative value in the capital stack? And that's really sort of where we've landed. We think that our approach to assessing each opportunity comes from, first and foremost, the assets themselves and understanding the assets inside and out and doing everything in our power so that we can understand exactly how those assets will perform in any given sort of market environment. And, and obviously, nobody's got a crystal ball and, you know, there's black swan events and, you know, sometimes markets move faster than you expect them to. And from an infrastructure perspective, there's lots of regulatory considerations and regulations change. and but. We're really all usually coming at it from the standpoint of a, a practitioner in the space of operating the real asset. And then how do you think about lending against those assets based on that? I think you know one of the things that, and I think more specifically, potentially even for insurance companies when we were chit-chatting before we started here, Stu, is the how do you really access some of these opportunities, right? So it's the infrastructure debt space, I think, for a long time had been really as it related to uh, insurance capital, had really been the large upper sort of mega cap space, huge balance sheets that had a significant amount of capital that they could take the illiquidity premium that were associated with sort of investment grade private placements in the infrastructure debt space. So much so that it's almost more of an asset liability matching exercise, a diversification exercise. Hey, you know, if we can get, if 65 to 90% of our portfolio is in credit of some kind and a significant amount of corporate credit. What ways can we think about to sort of diversify that risk? And I think Infra, Infra does a great job at that. But you were still talking about a certain small subset of investors that could access the opportunity and that were doing it for reasons that were maybe not the same reasons that some of the sort of smaller insurance companies would consider doing it. We actually believe that in the infrastructure debt space, there's better relative value in the sub-investment grade portion of the market. And some people might say, well, that's a very small portion specifically in the private space. But what you'll find is if you look at, you know, sort of the traditional leverage loan index in the U S some, some significant portion of it, 35, 40% will actually be insurance, um, infrastructure or infrastructure oriented. And so the way we've gone about accessing that opportunity. So I think first and foremost, insurance companies should think to themselves like, Hey, do I have a bank loan portfolio that, uses the leveraged loan index and maybe even some high yield bonds and sort of start to think about like a a, a comprehensive holistic view to where do i have infrastructure in my portfolio already but then that follow-on is we've come up with a way because we were focused on the sub-investment grid side to really sort of try to identify those pockets of that market that were the best assets that are liquid and then come up with a wrapper That allowed people to, specifically insurance companies, actually at the request of an insurance company way, way back in the day to create rated entry points that make it a little bit more efficient. And I know there's lots of conversation around structured credit and um, some of the consideration that regulators are giving CLOs and and the like. Really, you know, like the focus of what we're trying to do is not for a capital arbitrage play. It's really just to create flexibility. We're not trying to to eliminate, you know, any, any sort of RBC capital, you know, RBC impact to an investment. And some of these sub-investment great opportunities, we're just trying to create flexibility into the way that you actually could invest, you know, different rated entry points, etc. So I I think for a lot of folks, uh, specifically on the smaller end, maybe these larger, lumpier investments are, are harder to access, we think, better relative value and Sub-investment grade and and if there's ways to find opportunities to invest that that make the bite size a little bit more manageable, allow you to diversify over time is is the best approach.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's always challenging for an insurance company that's not a mega to get access to, efficient access to, the kinds of return profiles that some of the mega balance sheets have. Right. And I mean, being able and it helps it, it allows them to stay competitive, price competitive and competitive in the market. I mean, it's a, you know, I mean, it's just a fact of it, an economic fact. Right. So that makes really good sense. And, and appreciate you, you talking about the ability to access uh, this asset class in an efficient way. I have learned a lot today. I've got two questions for you on the way out the door. These are the fun ones. Some people have chosen to only answer one, but I know that you're not going to do that, right? This is a challenge. a challenge. Yeah, this is good. So the first one, you can answer either one or both, but it's free optionality, Matt. What more can you ask for in this business?
1: Love optionality.
0: The first one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? And the second one is, who would you like most like to have lunch with, alive or dead?
1: Oh, I guess I'm going to apologize in advance for being sentimental here. But, you know, my father recently passed. It was a very important figure in my life and, you know, our our family's lives. And it was, you know, just at the, the tail end of last year. So not quite a year out. So I think I'm I'm going to honor him in, in both uh, answers. I'll take the second one first and say, if I could have lunch with him, you know, tomorrow, I would, I would, you know, certainly love to do that for obvious reasons. And then, the best piece of advice he ever gave me was the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. And that And At the end of the day, I think you you keep yourself out of trouble <laughs> um, more often than not if you can uh, just keep it simple.
0: That's great. I'm sorry to hear about your dad, but I'm glad that he was such an important figure in your life, too. We've been joined today by Matt Adessa, private market specialist at DWS. Matt, thanks for being on. Thanks for taking the time.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Stu.
0: Our pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you like us, please rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceAUM.com podcast.